Now, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 1, Romans 1. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read, because the focus of the message this morning, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. This is a message that I hope to preach last week, but that obviously wasn't God's will. It was God's will that you would hear from our beloved brother Ray a very important message about forgiving people, not holding grudges. And hopefully we all take that to heart and we keep short accounts of sin between us and God and especially don't hold anything against anybody else because who deserves to go to hell more than I do? Nobody. Right? wonderful message we heard last week. Well, this morning, how do sinners provoke the wrath of God? They suppress the truth. This morning, suppression of truth is the focus. Romans 1, 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why is God's wrath being revealed now from heaven? Because in an unrighteous way, sinners suppress the truth. Well, what is he talking about? Because what is known about God or of God is manifest among them. For God has shown them Well, what has God shown them? For since the creation of the world, his invisible things are being noticed, being perceived through the things that are made, even his eternal power and deity, that they may be without excuse. Because that, knowing God, they didn't glorify him as God, Neither gave thanks, but became vain in their reasonings, and their senseless heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God for the likeness of an image of corruptible man and birds and quadrupeds and creeping things. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the ministry of his holy word. Father, please draw near to us today. Thank you for the many times you have blessed your word. We are completely and totally dependent on you. Do not leave us to ourselves today. We have no safety net. We only have the Holy Spirit. Send the Holy Spirit. Shine light from Scripture on every heart. And glorify your name because you and you alone are worthy. And if in any way we are holding down truth that we don't want to face, work in our hearts so that we would face that truth and we would embrace that truth and glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're... If you're listening, would you please mute your phone because feedback is coming through. We're hearing. Would you kindly mute your phone? Thank you. Oops. Kindly mute your phone.
Is it distracting you so much that you want me to hang up? Or can you listen? Everybody okay? Oh, that's it. Sorry. Anyway, gotta, man's got to do what a man's got to do, right? Sorry to them, but uh, can't have that. You got to listen to the ministry of the word today. Too important. For all I know, this may be the last time I ever get to preach, and I don't want it distracted by all morning long. You don't need that. Not today. Because what, what I got to say to you today is something you need to hear. It's something of great importance for every one of our souls, whether you're a Christian or not. You see, the Apostle Paul is talking about God's wrath being on display and how God's wrath is relevant for everybody. It's relevant for every generation. We don't need to find a more relevant way to present Christ to this generation. The wrath of God is relevant to every person in every generation. The wrath of God is why every human being in every generation needs Christ. And this is not a light issue. Moses says in Psalm 90, who knows the power of your anger and of your wrath according to the fear that's due to you. This is not a topic to fool around with. Yet, it is not now a popular topic. It never has been a popular topic. People are like, oh, please tell me about God's wrath. I don't think so. It's not a popular topic now. It never has been, and it never will be a popular topic. And yet, people say, tell me something. You can talk about God's wrath. Let me hear about that. Tell me something positive. Tell me something encouraging that will make me feel better. Well, it's easy to do. And there's lots of folks that are willing to do it. But the Apostle Paul doesn't introduce the gospel of Christ by telling people things that are going to make them feel better and that they want to hear. He introduces the gospel of Christ by telling them the truth. Why people in every generation need Christ? And the answer is the wrath of God. Why do you need Christ? Because the wrath of God is being revealed. Now it's very important in saying a thing like that to notice this as well. The wrath of God the gospel starts with a very serious face. Nothing to fool around with. But that doesn't mean that the gospel comes from any malice in the heart of God. Paul doesn't introduce the wrath of God out of malice or out of ill will to sinners. Get it in context. This whole thing is about grace. It's about mercy. It's about Christ. It's about why you need Christ. If all God was intending to do was to damn to hell everybody that deserved to go to hell, there wouldn't be any gospel. There wouldn't be any good news. There wouldn't be any Bible. So when he speaks about the wrath of God, you have to take it in its proper context. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. It's being, he brings it up in the context of showing people why they need Jesus Christ. It comes out of kindness. He talks about wrath, not out of malice or out of ill will, but out of goodwill to bring the foundation of God's good news to sinners. He brings this good news because he's bringing a message of mercy and a message of deliverance and escape 
and rescue from the wrath of God. And there's only one way to be rescued from the wrath of God, and that's through Jesus Christ. And the and Jesus Christ and salvation in him is relevant to you because of God's wrath. That's the context in which the apostle presents the wrath of God. And he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. God's wrath is on display right now. How is God's wrath on display? He's about to tell us in the end of the chapter. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. If you want to see God's wrath on display in society, look at this. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. He gave them up to what? He gave them up to sexual promiscuity. He gave them up to what? He gave them up to perversion. He gave them up to what? He gave them up to a lack of common decency. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 31. He abandoned them. He said, okay, bye-bye. What did it mean gave them up? It means he stopped the restraining influence of his common grace in that society. And when he did, that society abandoned, was given over to promiscuity, perversion, and a lack of common decency. That's the wrath of God on display in this present age. Now why? Why why does God do that? Why does God abandon a society to promiscuity, perversion, and a lack of common decency? What did they do to provoke God to that? And the answer is found in our text in these verses, verses 18 to 23. What they do? Why did God give them up? God gave them up. God gave them up. What they do? This is what they did. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know more about God than they want to know. They know more about God then they're willing to admit they know. They live in denial. They suppress. They refuse to face and openly confess and admit what they know to be true about God. And that provokes God to wrath, which he displays. He gave them up. He gave them up. He gave them up. You want to see God's wrath, the reality of it on display? Look at a society that suppresses the truth. And God gives such a society over to promiscuity, perversion, and a lack of common decency. They provoke his wrath by suppressing what they know to be true about God. That's the whole point of this section. It makes sense? So how does Paul prove that this is true? Perception of God and rejection of God. Perception, what they perceive to be true about God, and rejection, what they do in spite of the fact that they perceive God. How does Paul know that they suppress the truth? Perception. They perceive God. Rejection. They reject God. That's it. They suppress. They hold down in an unrighteous, inexcusable manner what they don't want to admit openly but what they know is true. So let's look at this universal perception of God. How do they suppress the truth? The wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed against all who suppress the truth in unrighteousness in an ungodly, unconscionable manner. Because, what did they do? 
what is known of God is manifest among them, for God has shown them. So the foundation of this universal awareness or perception is what has been called general revelation. God has shown them. The heavens declare the glory of God. All creation shouts that God is real. It has stamped upon it, made in heaven. God has shown them. Oh, but possibly they don't see it. It's got a label on it, but it's kind of in the inside somewhere and they don't read it. No, Paul says that's not true. Listen to what he says next. Look, about, look at the features of this universal perception of God. This is, if you take the skeleton of what he says in the next verse, right? General revelation. Now, what do you mean? What has God shown them? For, this is general revelation. This is what God has shown them. For his invisible things are being noticed. God has shown them in general revelation because this is the truth. This is the perception. His invisible things are being noticed. They perceive God. Now, then look at the features of this perception. How long, what's the duration since the creation of the world? By what means? Through the things that are made. Through creation. They notice God's invisible things through the visible things that God made. They see God's invisible things. And how long since the creation of the world? This is nothing new, and it's, it, it's from the very foundation of creation. Human beings have seen God's invisible things in the visible things that God makes by means of them. And what things do they see? What invisible things of God are being noticed by means of God's creation? Answer, namely, even his eternal power and deity. Eternal power, unoriginated power, causation, and deity, personal plan, intention, intelligent design. Unoriginated power, and personal plan. That's what they see. That's what they perceive through the things that are made. And what's the result? So what? So that they are without excuse. It's inexcusable for them to see God's unoriginated power and personal plan, his power and his plan in and through creation, and to suppress that truth, not want to know it, not want to face it, not willing to admit it, it's inexcusable. So that they may be without excuse. Now that's what Paul says. Have I twisted it around? Should I read it again? It's hard to believe, huh? Compared to the stuff you've been told by people. Right? It's not what people say today, is it? Not what they say. Should I read it again? Since the creation of the world, his invisible things are being noticed. Not being missed, they're being noticed. How are they being noticed? Being perceived by means of the things that are made. What things are being noticed? His eternal, unoriginated power and deity. And what's the result of the fact that they may be without excuse? 
since the creation of the world by means of creation, an originated power and personal plan are being noticed so that people that concoct false religion are without excuse. Now, how do human beings, through creation, perceive an originated power and deity? Power had to come from somewhere they perceived thereby an originated power. And the design that they see in creation had to come from an intelligent designer. Now you say, oh, you've got to be the only person on earth that ever saw this in the text. Nope. This is what one of the great theologians, Herman Bovink, says. Doctrine of God, page 72. Everything depends on the presence of purpose in the universe. Not porpoise, purpose. If that is established, the existence of the highest being and the fact that he possesses consciousness is thereby given. End quote. And Stephen Charnock, the existence and attributes of God hundreds of years ago, wrote this first on page 29, then on page 43. I'm just going to read you what Charnock wrote, and then I'll interpret it. Charnock wrote this, Whoever saw statues or pictures, but presently thinks of a statuary or limner. Now remember, he wrote that 300 years ago. Who beholds garments, ships, or houses, but understands that there was a weaver, a carpenter, an architect? Who can cast his eyes about the world, but must think of that power that formed it, and that the goodness which appears in the formation of it has a perfect residence in some being? Now let's go back to his archaic language. Whoever saw statues or pictures but presently thinks of a statuary, modern English, sculptor. And limner, modern English, painter. So if you see a statue, you say, oh, it must be a sculptor. And if you see a picture, there must be a painter. And if you see uh, things that have been built and woven, there must be an architect and a carpenter and a weaver. And then he says, from all this it follows. If there be an order and harmony, there must be an orderer. One that made the earth by his power and established the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his discretion. Order being the effect, it can't be the cause of itself. Order is the disposition of things to an end and is not intelligent, but implies an intelligent orderer. Therefore, it is as certain that there is a God as it is certain that there is order in the world. End quote. So who sees that? Just uh, Charnock? Just Bobbing? Just GGN? Look what the text says. His invisible things are being noticed. By whom? By the very people who don't want to admit that they see it. By the very people who suppress the truth, who don't want openly to confess what they know to be true. It says that they see his unoriginated power and his plan, order, whatever you want to call it, design. They see it and they don't want to face it. They don't want to admit it. They don't want to openly confess 
confess what they know to be true. And how do they see it? They see it in the creation that God made. Years ago, when I first brought this message in the exposition, I, I quoted from an author named uh, Walt Brown, wrote a book called In the Beginning, excellent book, about uh, the creation and the flood, and how they're both historically absolutely true. And in that book, he quoted from a scientist. And when I first did this, I just simply quoted from that book and didn't actually check the quote from the scientist. But now, since that time, not just for this sermon, but since that time, I did check the quote. I had confidence in Walt Brown that his quotation was true. But now I can tell you absolutely and in fact that it is true. And he quoted the scientist accurately and in context. Now, this scientist, you probably heard his name. But I'm not going to tell you what his name was. But he was talking about the human eye. And what this scientist said about the human eye was this. And he was accurately quoted by Walt Brown in his book, In the Beginning. And this is from a scientist whose name you're going to hear in a minute. But first, I want you to hear what the scientist said. Quote, to suppose that the eye, the human eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, <laughs> at least it used to, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confessed, absurd in the highest possible degree. End quote. Now who said that? Charles Darwin. Origin of Species, page 75, in the edition in which I checked it out. You know what else Darwin then does? He goes on to attempt to show how what he himself admits he suppresses the truth. What he himself admits is absurd. He goes on to try to show how it happened over such a long period of time by accident. And yet, all the parts of the eye, if they just developed one at a time, they wouldn't be any use. They have to all be there together, function together. And the brain has to figure out how to reverse the image that shows up on the retina. All that by accident? You've got to be kidding me. Even Darwin admits it's absurd. It's absurd. It couldn't have evolved one piece at a time. That's not even possible. It wouldn't be beneficial to just have one part of the eye and not the rest. You know, he got one thing right. To think that that could have happened without design, by accident, by chance, over millions of years is absolutely and utterly absurd. It didn't happen that way. And he knew it. But he didn't want to admit it. Didn't want to face it. It's not that he didn't know it. Oh, he knew it. He just didn't want to admit it. Similarly, similarly, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, these observations come from a well-known astronomer. And I don't want to mention his name. But they come because I, I don't want to get into why I don't want to mention his name. I just don't want you to get the impression that I thought this up. And I'll just tell you his work. It's called, quote, The Limits of the Universe, end quote. 
And the heavens declare the glory of God. This well-known astronomer mentions over 40 different ways in which the heavens display God's design and glory. First of all, the amount of gravity that the earth has. What is gravity anyway? Know what it is? Well, I was taught in engineering that it's, quote, the force of mass attraction. Okay? What's that? See this? Has mass. See this? Well, Earth has mass. That's why it drops, right? You know this. This is gravity. Right? I have to hold it up or it's going to drop. And I don't, I don't want to spill it all over the place. So I don't want to really drop it. You know what I'm saying? Do I have to explain to you gravity? That it's real? But how come the Earth has exactly the amount of mass it has? And exactly the amount of gravity that it has? What if it had a little too much? Well, if it did, then the atmosphere would have too much ammonia and methane. Know that because the methane ammonia, well, you know, you know what happened then? <laughs> Worse than the sound that that made this morning. And if it had too little, it would lose too much water. But it was designed to have exactly the right amount of gravity to produce exactly the atmosphere that you need to breathe. And the Earth is rotating around the sun tilted on its axis. But if it was tilted too much or too little, the surface temperature would be far too great. You couldn't live here. But it was designed to have exactly the tilt it needs to be habitable. And how long it takes for the Earth to rotate. If it was too long, the difference, you know, if it was going a lot more slowly, the difference between the temperature at night and the temperature at day would be unbearable. And if it was going uh, a little too short, too fast, the atmospheric wind velocities would be overwhelming be too much wind. So it's rotating at exactly the right speed so that the difference between daytime and nighttime temperature is habitable and there isn't too much wind. Oh, what do you think of that? Oh, just an accident. Oh, that's nonsense. Not an accident. He made the earth out of his loving kindness. That's what some 136 says, thank God for his loving kindness by which he did that. And furthermore, the gravitational interaction between the earth and the moon. So you have the mass of the earth, the mass of the moon, the distance between the earth and the moon, all the issues associated with the gravitational interaction between the earth and the moon. And if there was too much, the tidal effects on the ocean and atmosphere would, would be too severe. And if it was too little, you would have climatic, climactic instability. That's exactly what it should be. And somebody designed it that way. And there's more. The magnetic field of the Earth. If it was too strong, you'd have all these severe electromagnetic storms. And if it was too weak, it wouldn't protect from the harmful radiation that's coming from outer space. And so it's exactly the right strength of a magnetic field, not too strong, not too weak, designed to protect life on Earth. Accident, huh? The thickness of the crust of the Earth. If the Earth's crust were too thick, too much oxygen would be transferred from the atmosphere into the crust and you couldn't breathe. And if it were too thin, there'd be too much volcanic activity to live on the surface. So the crust of the Earth is just the right thickness. So you can breathe the oxygen and the volcanic, the volcanic activity is limited. The ozone level, the O3 level in the atmosphere, if it were too high, there'd be too cold on the Earth. If it were too low, too hot on the Earth. The amount of oxygen in the atmosphere 
If it were too much, everything would burn up too easily. And too little, you couldn't breathe. And on and on and on. The amount of oxygen, the amount of ozone, the tilt of the Earth, the speed at which it rotates, the distance from the sun, and the speed at which it goes around the sun, everything. All designed to sustain life here out of the love and kindness of God. And those are observations from a, a, an astronomer that will remain unnamed, who wrote in The Limits for the Universe. It's amazing, isn't it? The heavens declare the glory of God, and people see it and realize it. And yet, look at verse 21 to 23. In spite of the fact that they see it, and realize it and recognize it. There is this universal perception of God through the things that are made. People see his unoriginated power and deity, yet unconscionably they reject God and formulate false religion. Verse 21 to 23, because that knowing God, they didn't glorify him as God neither gave thanks but became vain in their reasoning and their senseless heart was darkened. This is what's going on inside the heart. What is going on in the heart of people who suppress the truth of God that they see in creation? What's going on inside their heart? Look what they do. They don't glorify him. They don't give thanks. But they're filled with arrogance, vain in their reasoning. Their heart is darkened. And then this is what they do outwardly. They make grandiose profession. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And a decadent religious change. And they change the glory of the incorruptible God for all these different things that they substitute for God. Ingratitude and pride are the roots of all wicked suppression, unconscionable suppression of the truth of general revelation. People don't want to humble themselves and they don't want to say thank you to God and they don't want to admit their dependence upon God and they don't want to say thank you. They won't say thank you to God for their life or for their food, or for their health, or for the blessings, or for the comfort that they enjoy in spite of their sin, they will not say thank you. I will never, in their heart they say, I will never say thank you to a God like you. Never. Never. I don't need God. God's a crutch. I won't glorify him. That's what goes on in the heart of people that suppress the truth. I summarize it in two words. Arrogance and ingratitude. Arrogance, carnal, reigning pride, and ingratitude, a refusal to say thank you. That's it. That's what's going on in people's hearts. That's why they don't want to admit what they know to be true about God. That's why. It's really pretty straightforward, isn't it? Pride and unthankfulness. Right? How good it is to thank the Lord. Because the root of all religious apostasy is ingratitude and arrogance. Does that make sense? And then look what they do outwardly. Inwardly, their approach to religion changes. They approach religion in terms of philosophical, speculative arguments, reasoning, pride, is what controls their approach to religion. It's all in the head. It's all intellectual. They became empty and vain 
in their reasoning. Religion for them becomes a matter of the head, a matter of philosophy, arrogant, vain, philosophical speculations come out of an arrogant heart that doesn't want to say thank you to God. And then professing to be wise, we have emerged. Now we see. We know. We understand. Follow us. And then they concoct a false religion. They became fools and they exchanged. The Romans made the image of an eagle. The, the people in Moses' day made the image of a quadruped. What quadruped? A four-footed animal, a calf. Birds and calves. Nebuchadnezzar made the image of a man. Creeping things. Because when, when the human race emerged from the ark, they all had, through their father Noah, the true religion. And every single one of us sitting in this room and alive today is descended from Noah and his family. Every single one of us is descended from Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Our ancestors emerged from that ark with true religion. And if we've got anything else, it came from suppressing truth and rejecting God. Out of arrogance and ingratitude, along with arrogant speculations and professions of great wisdom, follow me, I get it, and changing true religion to some kind of decadent religious apostasy. So, there's Paul's evidence. What do you think? It's Paul's evidence. That's his case. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. God gave them up. Why would they do? They suppress the truth. What truth they suppress? They suppress the truth that they know about God from creation. And how'd they do that? Why'd they do it? They did it because their hearts are filled with arrogance and ingratitude. How'd they do it? They concocted all these false philosophies and false religions out of their ingratitude and unmortified carnal pride. That's what happened. That's Paul's evidence of how they suppressed the truth. Does that make sense? All right. Applications. So what, folks? Let me ask you this. Did Paul convince you are you convinced that Paul's telling the truth? Did Paul get it right? Yes or no? What do you think? Yes? Most of you think so? Think Paul got it right? I have to tell you, he convinced me. I think Paul's telling the truth. I think Paul's got it right. I'll tell you what. What if Paul got it wrong? What are we doing here? We're wasting our time. If this is not the truth, then we are wasting our time. And we need to go to a secular university and learn the truth. Right, man, what are you doing here? If what Paul's saying is wrong, what are you doing here? Go to a secular university. They're wise. Just ask them how wise they are. They understand. They can explain it all to you. They know everything, right? They can tell you. Go to them. Trust the science. Trust the science. But what if the scientist is suppressing the truth? What if the scientist is lying to himself? What if the scientist, I don't have a problem with science. I have a problem with the scientist. I believe what Paul is saying is true. He's telling you the truth. This is what's really going on. People are suppressing the truth. So my first application is this. 
honesty and integrity. Let's have it. Believe the Bible rather than people who are living in denial and who are suppressing with a lack of integrity what they know to be true about God. Dear people, please, do not be naive. Do not be intimidated. Do not revere or be bullied by the proud who know it all, who call us raving obscurantists, who claim to have great insights, the scientific, intellectual community, the prophets of our society. Don't be in awe of them. Don't be bullied by them. See them for what they really are. Everybody perceives that a powerful, intelligent creator made the world. Don't let them tell you they don't know. And many people refuse to face this truth and live in the light of it. Why is that? Because they hate their creator. They suppress and deny what they know to be true about him because they have no heart to serve him. And so they pretend not to know what they know and not to see what they see. They don't want to admit what they know to be true. And evidently such behavior is inexcusable. And so Paul does not paint agnosticism Oh, I don't know if God exists or not. How, how can I know? I can't see God. Can you see God? Paul does not paint agnosticism in innocent, neutral colors. He doesn't say, here's what we have to do. We have to see the evidence of design and creation, and then we have to go to these poor, innocent, agnostics who just don't see it and we have to show them the evidence of design and creation and when we do that will solve everything if they could just see the evidence of design and creation then that would bring them to where they need to be and is that what Paul said does he say look these poor innocent agnostics they just don't see it. If we could just show them the evidence of design and creation. Folks, what did he say? He didn't say we need to show them. He said they already see it. He said they already see it and they don't want to admit it. He didn't say these poor innocent agnostics. If we could just show them. He said they already see it. They don't want to see it. They already know it. They don't want to admit it. I remember one time when I, when I first preached this, I said it was a few years ago. Now I think it was so long ago. Somebody called me up on the phone. And he said to me, I forget why he called me. I think he was in a, I forget exactly the details, the context. But I remember very well, like it was yesterday, what he said to me said to me, can you prove to me that God exists? I remember what I said to him. I said, okay, let me ask you a question. Why do you want me to prove to you what you already know? Why? Why do you want me to prove to you what you already know? So look, folks. I don't have a problem with people showing and displaying and proclaiming the design in creation. Great, proclaim it. But don't get the notion in your head that just by seeing and proclaiming design in creation, it's going to make any difference. And this is something that was said by the uh, Answers in Genesis group uh, 20 years ago. They've been saying this. The so-called intelligent design movement, if you, if you have the delusion to think that just by showing everybody the design and creation, we're going to change the world. No, you're not. They already see it. They already know it. They don't want to see it. They don't want to know it. They don't want to admit it. There's the truth of it. 
I said to him, why are you asking me to prove to you what you already know? Why? Can we please be honest? Why don't you want to admit that God exists? What do you got against him? What did he ever do to you that you're so angry with him, that you hate him, that you don't want to admit that he exists, that you don't want to say thank you, you don't want to acknowledge him? Come on. Please be honest. Tell me the truth. What's the real issue with you and God? Don't tell me you don't know God exists and I need to prove it to you. That's ridiculous. Of course you know. Yeah, you know. And it goes to everybody sitting here in this room. You know. You already know. Not only in creation, but as we're going to see later on in your own conscience, you know. This general revelation is not only outside of you, all around you, screaming made in heaven, it's right inside your own heart. And you know. Don't tell me you don't know, because I don't believe you. I believe Paul. But that doesn't mean I hate you, or I'm angry to you, I despise you. No, no, no. I don't hate you. Paul doesn't hate these people when he says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Why is he mentioning this? He's mentioning this in order that people would get right with God. He wants people to be saved. I want you to be saved. If you're lying to yourself, you know God exists. Don't, don't lie to yourself anymore. Get honest with yourself. Face the reality. Why are you suppressing this truth that you already know to be true? What's really going on in your heart? What's the issue? Face it. The gospel is about mercy to people that suppress the truth. It's about mercy to sinners that don't want to face what they know to be true about God. It's good news for people just like you and me, sinners that deserve to go to hell because we suppress the truth. It's mercy. God offers you life. He offers you deliverance in Jesus Christ. Face reality. Get honest. Don't lie about it to yourself anymore. You know God exists. So get to the real issues. What's your problem? What, what is really wrong? Honesty and integrity. And dear people, the flip side of that is don't be naive. Don't buy into this agnostic nonsense. Agnosticism is not about intellectual honesty. It's about fundamental moral dishonesty. It's about suppressing what people know to be true. Second thing I want to say is gratitude. What is really wrong at the root? Well, they've got arrogance and ingratitude. So what should we be? Thankful people. Because this kind of attitude of suppressing the truth always comes from an arrogant and ungrateful heart. It's the fountain of all religious apostasy. So beware of it. Watch out for it. Cultivate and put on, dear people, increased measures of gratitude and humility in Christ. Please don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't say, I refuse to thank you, God, for what you're doing in my life. We have great blessing from God. And unprofitable religious contentions and speculations stem from an ungrateful and proud heart. And see these things for what they are and from whence they spring and stay away from them. That is, unprofitable philosophical religious speculations and all that nonsense. See it from where it comes. An ungrateful, arrogant heart. And cultivate, dear people, through meditating on God's goodness, which is going to get to my last point, greater measures of gratitude. And this is it. Meditate. That's the connection. A song for the Sabbath day. A good thing to give thanks to the Lord. Gratitude. And where does that come from? To show his loving kindness and faithfulness. Why? For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the work of your hands. What is the Sunday for? The day of rest and worship. It's for 
focusing on the works of God in creation and in redemption until by dwelling on his work, you can say with the psalmist, you Lord have made me glad through your work. How good it is to thank the Lord. Make the most of your Sundays. Use them to think upon, dwell upon, meditate on God's great goodness, loving kindness, and faithfulness to you. His works of creation, his work of redemption, all of his great glorious works. Think about them, dwell upon them, meditate upon them, until you can say, you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. A song for the Sabbath day. How good it is to thank the Lord. So what are your Sundays basically focused on? I sincerely hope they are not focused on the NFL. I really do. What a waste. I sincerely hope that your Sundays are focused on the works of God, on creation, on redemption. Gratitude, gladness, and praise to God out of a grateful heart is the best preventive for suppressing truth and religious apostasy. Does that make sense? You, Lord, have made me glad through your work. So, study the eye until you reflect on it and you say, wow. Thank you, God, that I can see. Study the ear until you say, what? Thank you, God, that I can hear. And birds, the wing constructed by design on purpose, look into creation until your soul rejoices in the works of God in creation. The more you come to understand it, the more you see God's glory revealed in the heavens and in the earth and in everything that God made. You see his loving kindness. Oh, give thanks to God for his loving kindness endures forever. The second day, the atmosphere, the more you understand about it. You know, the ozone composition, the lightning amount and, and intensity, the amount of oxygen, the whole, everything about the atmosphere. I, all of it. Say, thank you, God. The third day, the dry land emerges from the sea. Thank you, God. The fourth day, the sun, moon, and stars, their configuration, exactly the right distance, exactly the right speed, the moon, the sun, all configured to sustain life on the earth in a perfect, beautiful, glorious design. Thanks be to God, because what does he say about those things? Your loving kindness endures forever. God did this out of love, out of goodwill to his creatures. He designed the earth and its relationship to the moon, the sun, and the stars. Out of his goodness and love. That's what Psalm 136 says. So think about it, because the more you think about it, the more you meditate on it, and the more you understand it, and the more reason you have to say, thank you, God, for your goodness and faithfulness. That's the way to spend a Sunday focused on God's works, his works of creation, his work of redemption, until greater measures of joy and gratitude are developed in your heart. So those are my applications, right, of this. Honesty. Don't don't, don't believe that people are not suppressing the truth. Don't believe, don't believe that agnosticism is intellectual honesty. It's anything but. Right? Gladness, gratitude, humility, meditation on the works of God. Take these things to heart. Because next time, God willing, if God allows me to stand in the pulpit again, I'm going to open up, God willing, verses 24 to 31. It's not an accident, folks, that we see divine abandonment in our society. Our society has done this very thing, openly suppressed truth and replaced it 
with the horrible lie of evolution. And you see the result. As they refused to have God in their knowledge, God gave them up. You see it all around you. It's not an accident. It's the proof and evidence that what our society desperately needs is the gospel of Jesus Christ to come in power. May God be pleased to bless his holy word. Let's pray.